Okay. Good to be here. As uh, Mrs. Pevsner mentioned, this started what nine, you said 19 years ago. So and it started as a birthday party, birthday celebration, appropriate to the nine days. So what kind of a celebration can we do for the nine days? We can learn Torah. It's always a good thing to learn Torah. And it started as a Yone Mashiach Ogola. And then I guess other topics as well were added. So I know that there was a poster that went out with the topics on it. Okay, people saw the topics, or I can talk about whatever I want. It's all the topic, but that's why you're here. Okay, but uh, before we get into the topic, I just want to mention something about Mashiach. We all know about the incredible love that our matriarch Rachel has for all of the Jewish people who are her children. She is the archetypical Yiddish Mama, and that she was Mesa Nefesh, not to be buried in Maris Machpelah, which is the second holiest spot in the world. Mesa Nefesh, by choice, to be there on the side of the road where her children will be brought into Gullus. We're all uh, familiar with the words of the, of the Navi of Yemiyahu, who says, Nishma, that a voice is heard in Rama. Rachel Mavakal, but now Rachel's crying for her children. And the simple meaning of the verse is that when the Yidden were brought into Gaulus the first time, into Bavel, so they, they came by the way where Rachel is buried, and she was able to be Moira Rachman on them to shorten the Gaulus. And she continues to be Moira Rachman on, on her children in Gaulus. But that, 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 that's the simple meaning. And, the simple meaning on its own is already very, very moving. Especially, I guess, if you're Jewish mothers, you can relate. You relate to the muscle I mean, more than I, to me, I've never been a Jewish mother. Um, I was raised by a Jewish mother, married to a Jewish mother. I'm raising some Jewish mothers, but I've never been a Jewish mother. So you could relate to this more than I can, but the love and the compassion, the rachmonis that a, that a mother has on children. It's a special thing. That, that's mamarochu, rochu, mavak Okay, so that's a simple shot, but I'm gonna tell you what the Alshif says. He reads the, he reads the Pasuk a little bit differently. And it's based on dikduk, on grammar. Technically, the word shouldn't be mevakeh. It should be boichia. Because rochel mevakeh actually means she makes others cry. If it means she cries, it should be rochel boichia. She's crying. But rochel mevakeh means she's making people cry. I got to be attentive to the Zoom people to admit them when they come in. Who is she making cry? She's making her children cry. Why is she making her children cry? So the Al-Sheikh says a, a marshal like this. He says, there was a woman 
Leilenu, her child is sick. And she brought the child to the doctor. And the doctor said that he may not live through the day. So she brought the child home and it was uh, Erev Shabbos. Came Friday night, they lit candles, but then uh, the candles go out and it's dark and you can't relight them. So it's dark in the house, it's Friday night, it's dark. And she can't see anything. And she has her sick child with her. And she can't see the child because it's dark and she can't turn on the lights. And she wants to check on the child. So how is she supposed to check on the child? So it's a known thing that when a child, especially a baby, hears crying, they start to cry. You ever had the chain reaction at three in the morning? <laughs> the toddler wakes up with a nightmare, then the, the baby wakes up, and then the 10-year-old, and then before you know it, there's eight people standing in your room. You ever had this before? You can relate to this, okay? The chain reaction, the domino effect, right? Because when a baby hears crying, they start to cry. So what does this mother do? She wants to know if her baby's okay. She wants to check on her baby. She can't turn on the light. So Rachel Mevak Albaneha means that this mother is crying to get the baby to cry back. So she cries a little bit at first. And she doesn't hear anything. So she cries a little bit louder. She doesn't hear anything. And then she cries really, really loud. She doesn't hear anything. Pasek says, Rachel Mevak Albaneha these are three types of tears, each one more intense than the other one. Samrudin is the most intense one, bitter, bitter tears. She doesn't hear an answer. So it says that Rachel, she refuses to be consoled. She's inconsolable. Albanaha for her children, ki because they are not. Because they are not. They're not what? So according to the Alshit, they're not crying. She's crying to hear if the baby cries, the baby's not crying. So she, she's inconsolable about the fact that she doesn't hear crying back. So Al Sheikh explains. Rama Rama also means in the heights, in Himmel. The Rachel is Mavak Albanaha. She cries every day that her children should cry back. And if they don't cry back, she's inconsolable that they're not crying. The way she checks in on us, the way she makes sure we're still alive is that we're still crying. So you think to yourself, 2,000 years, even in Golis, how much more do we have left to cry? You have to think about the fact. We have, we have, a, we have a mother, Rachel, and she has the compassion that a mother has on a child. We are her children, and she's checking on us to make sure that we're still alive. Imagine hearing, imagine you're the child. We are, we don't have to imagine, we are, we are the children. And someone who loves you, like only a mother could love you, like Rachel loves her children. Someone who is Meister Nefesh in this world and in the next world. Who is Meister Nefesh in this world 
She was Mesa Nefesh in the next world. She doesn't, she doesn't get to be buried in the second holiest spot in the world. All for what? Like a true Jewish mother, she's Mesa Nefesh for her children. So you think about, and who are her children? You, you are her children. So you think about a person. Okay, she's an Elam Amis. You never met Mamad Ocho. Okay, it doesn't matter. The point is, she's your mother. She knows you. You might not know her. She knows you. She has compassion on you. She's worried about you. She's, she's deeply concerned about you. And she's checking in on you to make sure you're still alive. And how does she check in? She calls out with a cry to see if she'll get a response. Just like that. That's very good. Couldn't have timed it better. Couldn't have timed it better. Okay. So let's talk about the topic. Speaking of uh, parental compassion. Speaking of parental compassion, what was the first topic? What? Why your kids need you? Yeah, I think it was more specific than that. Teenagers, yeah. Who do we have to work harder to have compassion on among all our children and our teens? What? They're rolling eyes, Say aloud, say. I said they're rolling eyes. They're rolling eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, there were once, there were three simple Yidin. And uh, it was Parshish, it was Parshish Vallejo. In Shul, they heard the Kriya about uh, the Akeda. But Avram Avinu brought Yitzchak to the Akeda. So there was a, a few Pasha to Yidin. And uh, after the Kriya, they were, they were talking to each other. They were simple Jews. So they were, they were saying, how, how old was Yitzchak by the Akeda? So one of them said, well, he says he was a, a nar. He was a boy. He was, he was a kid. He was probably nine, ten. The other one says, no, no, no. But then he carried the wood. So he must have been strong, must have been an adult. I bet, he, I bet you he was like 30. And the other one said, no, no, no. He wasn't 30, he wasn't nine. He was probably like in between. He was like a teenager. And they said, no, he wasn't a teenager. So why, why wasn't Yitzchak a teenager? He says, because then to Shechem wouldn't be a sacrifice. <laughs> okay. So let's... Why is it easy to have compassion on a baby? And it's not easy to have compassion on a teen. What? Babies don't talk back. Yeah. Okay. We don't have expectations. They're helpless. Compassion. You know the difference between Chesed Din and Rachamim? Chesed Din and Rachamim. Chesed Gvura Tiferes. What's the difference between Chesed Gvura and Tiferes? 
or what we call Chasidin Rachman. They're moving the mechitzas. They're bringing in more chairs. So let's give them a second. So Chasid would be that a guy walks down the street handing out $100 bills. Whoever he sees, he just hands them a $100 bill. Rich, poor, whoever, it doesn't matter. Not even call a patient yodhi, anybody. They don't, even have, they don't even have to ask. He just walks down the street, he's handing $100 bills to everyone. That's called chesed. Din, or gvura, is he walks down the street, and he's not handing out anything. Rachamim is compassion. He walks down the street. He sees people who don't look like, like they need the help. But then he sees somebody who looks like they need the help. And he takes the hundreds that he was going to, you know, that the, the Baal gives to everybody. He takes all those hundreds and he gives it to the guy who needs the help. What's the difference? Chesed is, I give indiscriminately. I mean, chesed chinam is almost like a redundancy, repetitive redundancy. Chesed chinam, all chesed is chinam. Because by definition, chesed is mitzad the mashpia, mitzad the giver. I'm giving because, because I'm about chesed, so I give. Din is, I don't give. I'm mitzamtim, I, I withhold. Rachmim is I give, and that's why Rachmim is kiferis, because it's a blend of chesed and din, but I give judiciously. Din is judgment. I give judiciously. I give with a judgment. What's the judgment? I look who needs it the most. So chesed is giving to everyone indiscriminately. Rachmim is who needs it most. So I asked the question, why do, do babies get more compassion from us than teenagers? It's, fu it's funny if you think about it, because who needs more compassion? The person who's in the most amount of pain. Everyone's familiar with the expression, right? But in our selfishness, we think that that's only talking about the Tsar Gidobana, but our own tzodas as parents. Stop a second, remember when you were a teenager. Wasn't that long ago? Remember when you were a teenager? Tzodas is the tzodas of the child. It's not just our tzodas. What do you say? You don't agree? What? You are teenagers. Oh, you were good teenagers. So you don't have compassion on today's teenager. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know what? So you're saying that, that we didn't speak to our parents the way our teens speak to us. That's good. You're making a judgment. The chesed means, oh, we're still in pain. Yeah, in Hakinami, I hear you were in pain. Chesed means, let them talk however they want. Rachimi means, 
for a second, just for a second, can you stop thinking about yourself? You're a Jewish mother. Think about Mama Rachel. Think about her selflessness. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about the fact that these kids are disrespectful. Stop thinking about the fact they don't do what they're told. Let's just be empathetic for a moment, a little compassion. A teen is in a lot of pain. Yes, I know we were also in pain, but again, you're, 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 you're minimizing, you're rationalizing. Don't rationalize. You know what it means to rationalize? Rational lies. We don't want to hear it. Don't do the rational lies. Write it down. It's rational. It makes sense. You're right. You're right. It's not going to help us. This is not helpful. Stop a second and start to feel with your heart. Don't be so Don't just think in your brain. Feel in your heart. Teens are in pain. All teens are in pain because they're not children anymore. They're not adults. It's awkward. Adolescence is an awkward phase. That if you have a child who's a little bit sensitive, a little bit sensitive, anyone has sensitive children? Hmm? They're all sensitive. We're, that's right. We are. But but I said let let's stop thinking about ourselves for a minute. Like Mama Rachel. Like Mama Rachel, a little selflessness for a second. Mama Rachel, 4,000 years ago, she was Mevater. And she's still waiting by the side of the road. So Mama Rachel was selfless 4,000 years. Okay, we could be selfless for four minutes. I know we're also in pain. I know we also have our problems. I understand. But when we talk about the relationship between a parent and a child, it's a clear one-way direction. It's a clear one-way street. We are the givers. Our children are the recipients. We are there to provide for them, not just food and clothing and, and skarlimud and, and, and camps. We provide them with emotional support. They do not owe it to us to provide us with emotional support. Is there a chi of kibbud aim? Yes, there is, and we'll talk about maybe what that means, but that does not mean that they are responsible for your emotional well-being or to not be chutzpah because they need to make sure that your feelings are protected. It's a one-way street. We take care of them. We are there to provide them with their emotional needs. They are not there to provide us with our emotional needs. In fact, it's probably one of the worst forms of abuse because it's so insidious. Because if you beat your kids or you abuse them otherwise, it's more obvious that it's abusive. But enmeshment, where a parent uses a child to meet their own emotional needs, doesn't look so terrible. It's actually one of the most destructive things that a parent can do to a child. So no, our children are not there to meet our emotional needs. We are there to meet their emotional needs. Let's think compassionately for a moment. Our teens are in pain. And if I want to tell you something, if you can't entertain that for even a moment, please do not tell your teenage children to do anything ever again, because it's an evade of putting a stumbling block before the bar. You hear what I'm saying? No. 
I'll spell it. You, you mean physically you don't hear it or you don't understand? Couldn't hear. Oh, don't, 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 don't move the amuletters, please. What? Yeah, that's right. Right. There was no such thing as teenagers. In the olden days, that was right. Yeah. They are annoyed. It's true. And I wish we expect that we said, and if we're sitting on Friday night, we're 14 and on a thousand of the lot of guests, and we're not helping. They're annoying, walk away, they're not going to help. <laughs> they don't get it. Unless it's in the Ami letter. So you'll hand up the book, Captain. It's in the book, it's one of the letters that made it in the book. Okay, so you, what? That was the Ami letter. Yeah. Can you please repeat this one more time? I saw the magazine. Could you please repeat this concept one more time? It's very deep. What? I have no idea. Could you please repeat it again? You know what? You guys discuss my letters and I'll come back. Rabbi Taub. Rabbi Taub. Rabbi Taub. Yeah. I'm trying to process what you just said. It's pretty big the concept could you repeat it again yeah i'm gonna repeat it as soon there's, there's like there's like 150 people here so i gotta wait till they get quiet <laughs> thank you there's 82 people on the zoom <sighs> i said you need to be a little bit empathetic toward our teens who are in pain and if you can't Try to put yourself into a mode of compassion for them, then please do yourself a favor. And mitzad lifnei iver leisitin michshol, you know, lifnei iver means there's a prohibition. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. That means to cause someone to do an evader, to set somebody up to fail morally. If you don't have compassion for your team, if you can't feel their pain, then I'm asking you, please don't ever tell them to do anything because you're setting them up to fail. And there, there are much worse consequences of their failure than the fact that it will annoy you. You are actually causing them to be over and kibbutz away. So it's safer and better. You should be Michael because the din is that a parent who is Michael al Kveidai or Kveida, Kveida Machul, the din is, you want to talk about Shokhanar of If you're Mavate and you're covered, then your kid's off the hook. If you insist on it, they're not. So I'm telling you something. If you don't have compassion on them, please do not be either on Lifna either by causing them to fail. And I'm gonna to explain to you why, if you don't care for them and you don't have compassion and you're not sensitive to their pain, why you are setting up to fail when you tell them to do things. It is poshit human psychology that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. If you do not establish compassion first, 
Nobody cares what you have to say. You mentioned the AMI letters, which I don't want to talk. I did that for eight years. Thank God I stopped. But what did everyone who ever read those letters notice? What's the first thing I did in every letter, religiously? What? Compassion. How did I show compassion? Validation. validation. Val Why did I do that? Why did you do the validation? You have to. Why do you have to? Do you hear what she's saying? They cannot hear. You can write the same exact answer. It could be two, three pages of very sound reasoning. But if you don't first validate, and I mean specific validation, not just general like, oh, you sound like a nice person. Specific value where you say back to them things that show that you were listening, reflective listening. If you don't first do that, your whole answer is worthless. And that's when you're giving advice that they ask for. How much more so if you're trying to tell them what to do? And they didn't ask for it. That if they don't feel validated, if they don't feel that there's a connection, a thread of compassion coming from you to them, they can't listen. Now you're going to say, well, it's their problem. They're to listen whether or not we love them or care for them or like them. And you can have that attitude. We can see how it plays out. In fact, it's not a theory. We do see how it plays out because we can see for ourselves the results of parents who stand on that holy war, that jihad of Kibbutz and they insist. It's not my problem my kid doesn't feel heard. It's not my problem my kid doesn't feel validated. I told him what to do. He doesn't listen. It's his problem. And you can, you know, there's an expression. You want to be right or you want to be happy. We say it a lot in marriage. You can apply it to parenting as well. You want to be right? Okay, you're right. You're right. Your kid's wrong. Where does that get you? Where does that get you? So I'm saying the most compassionate person, the, the, the archetype of compassion, when we're trying to think of a, of a muscle to embody compassion, what do we think of? A Jewish mother. So I'm, I'm not even telling you to do something that's unnatural to you. I'm saying tap into your innate Rachmonis. And I'm asking you again, what I asked you five minutes ago, how come it's so much easier to have compassion on a baby than it is to have compassion on a teen? Churit should be fakert, should be the opposite because compassion goes by who's in the most pain. A baby's pain, they're teething. That's the most pain they have, teething. A, a teenager has real pain. They, stay, they have a big enough brain to start thinking philosophically. They're like staying up at night, wondering about life. They start having deep questions. They're socially awkward. They're, they're constantly all day forced to be in a peer group, not of their own choosing. So they're always jockeying for social position. They're being graded, they're literally graded constantly because they're in school, constantly being evaluated and judged and told whether they're good or not good. Intense pressure. They don't know who they are. They don't have an identity yet. It's very stressful being a team. So I ask you on the question, why is it so much easier to have compassion on a baby than to have compassion on a teen when the teen is the one who really needs our compassion more than the baby? That's part of my argument, I'm saying. 
he can't help himself. He just look like it. Yeah, well, Cal, can I ask you can something? Can see their pain. Rabbi Cal? If I, if I listen to the people on the Zoom, I'm going to get a room full of 150 women talking. Because while I'm leaning in and listening to the Zoom, they're going to start breaking out into side conversations. I can't really. What are we saying back there? It was an interesting conversation going on. Yeah. Black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, when it gets to that point where the kid starts acting out, then you know they're in pain. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking how to figure it out five years before. You know what, what, what I want to encourage everyone to do? Write down questions on these papers. I would love to have this be more interactive, but I see what's happening over here. Because we have noise and because the room isn't so controlled as far as sound. So anytime people start talking, I lose the room. And it's, it's, it's not fair to people who are trying to focus and concentrate. So unfortunately, I would love this to be more of a dialogue. I would like to be a free for all actually. But I'm, I'm going to say, if you have questions, write the questions down. We'll get to the questions. But for now, let me just let me just tell you a few things, and uh, with, without trying to interact too much. I, unfortunately, I would like to do it more as a dialogue, but I just I think the room is not conducive to it. Pasha begashmis, the sound doesn't allow for it. Does everyone notice that 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 happens? As soon as somebody starts talking, everybody else starts talking, and then. What? The classroom, of the classroom of teenagers. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Go to the principal. Okay. When a baby is born, everybody is so happy, everyone's so proud. Baby can't do anything. And we have nachas from this from this baby, in spite of the fact that they, they really they, they don't offer anything. They, they don't have no they don't have, they don't they're not making a contribution. It's like I don't even know if I like you. You know, maybe grow up, learn how to say a few words, I'll take you out for coffee, I'll see if I like you. But baby's just lying there. What are they doing? And yet everyone loves the baby and everyone's proud of the baby. They have nachas from the baby. Take pictures of the baby. He's in this pose. He's in that pose. In the same pose. So baby has one pose. But I'll tell you what's right about it. It's actually it's coming from a, from a correct place. It's actually not wrong. It's not wrong that we have so much nachas from babies for doing nothing. It's actually right. What's wrong is that we stop. What's wrong is that some, at some point we stop. When we have nachas from a baby who can't do anything, it's actually the deepest spiritual truth, which is that the ultimate nachas is from the nisham. 
the fact that you're able to talk, the fact that you have certain talents, the fact that you, you know, you do things well, that's a circumstance of your goof, of your body and your situation in the world. But then there's the, the, the neshama, which existed long before you were embodied, before you came into the physical world. And, uh, and that's there from the very moment that you're born. And when a baby is born, we're keyed into that, to the idea that there's this, this, this being, this entity called the neshama. We don't articulate it this way. I don't think parents actually use these spiritual words. Some do, but most don't. But there's this, there's this feeling where we're maybe subconsciously keyed into the fact that this is a heavenly being, this neshama, this gift. And because of that, we're really, really all intuitively in line with the truth that our child is intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy. And, and that's a deep spiritual truth because the neshama, where does it come from that a child is intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy? That comes from the neshama because that's what the neshama is. The neshama is intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy. Let me just explain what those terms mean. Intrinsically worthy means its worth comes from itself. It doesn't have to go out and acquire something or accomplish something in order to have value. The value is built in, it's intrinsic. That's the neshama. Unconditionally worthy means it cannot lose its worth. There's no way it can not be valuable. The neshama is valuable. That's what it is. In fact, that's what it means. It's intrinsically worthy. The two are intertwined. And the third thing is infinitely worthy. How worthy is a neshama? Can you put a price tag on the worth of a neshama? Infinitely worthy. There's no amount. So the neshama is intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy. When you look at your baby, you see neshama, whether you articulate it this way or not. And therefore, you identify this baby as being intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy. What happens? They start to grow up. And then you get distracted by the superficial conditions of embodiment, the personality, the talents, the challenges, strengths, the weaknesses, whatever, all this stuff that is bodily, that is of this world, that is temporary. And you start to value them or the opposite based on those things, based on those factors. You know, they've done studies that toddlers have great self-esteem and generally speaking around five years old, self-esteem plummets. And the prevailing theory is that it coincides with school. If you, if, if, when a child starts going to school, all of a sudden they start being compared to others and their self-esteem plummets. Now, if you send your child to school at five, I guess their self-esteem plummets at five. If you send them to the, you know, the, it gets earlier and earlier and earlier. I mean, I, I think now they send the kids to nursery school like two weeks old or something. You know when the other time is that we're keyed into the fact that a person is really a soul and they get a free pass and everyone says how beautiful and wonderful they are? When they die, yeah, very good. 
So either the only time you get a break in this world is when you just came to the world or you just left it. Babies and dead people get a free pass. Everybody else gets mercilessly judged. When our children, our babies, we're tuned into the truth that they don't have to earn our acceptance. They have it. Unfortunately, as they grow up and they develop personalities and, and they start to do dif different things and they start to exhibit different strengths and different weaknesses, all of a sudden we throw that out the window and we start, we replace their true eternal identity of neshama with this new made up identity that has to do with matters of the body. How smart they are, how well behaved they are, how whatever, just stuff that you didn't use as criteria when they were babies in their crib. So what's the real answer? If, if the question is, how can we tune back into the fact that your child is intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy, how, how do we do it? We have no choice. Well, how do we do it? What do we have to do? We have to focus on the soul. So with immense apologies, I know that people don't like the spiritual talk. I know. And by the way, where do I get the biggest pushback when I get when I get spiritual? The from crowds. The from crowds don't want to hear it. If I'll quote secular psychology, everyone, oh, that sounds good. That's very good. When I start talking to Shama, oh, weird. It's just too lofty for me. This is not practical. And they start making arguments, but, but, but the chutzpah, the chutzpah. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to the chutzpah. We'll talk about the chutzpah, but hold on a second. Your child is a neshama. Not your child has a neshama, your child is a neshama. If that's not the foundation of your opinion of them, please don't even try to. Hi. It's Chase Taub live in the country. Hi, Where are we going first? Uh, so Weinstein's going to turn down the... Is that... Okay. Yesef Atzadik. He had a moment of uh, teenage struggle. Right? You know about his teenage struggle? Let's talk about his life. I mean, talk about trauma. His brothers tried to kill him. In the end, they didn't kill him. What they do, they sold him into slavery. I don't know which is worse. He, he ends up in a foreign land. This teenage kid who was just told by his family that we hate you so much, we want you dead. I'm just, I'm just thinking, relate to it emotionally for a second. Then he, he, he's, he's shipped off to this strange land. And over there, what happens? All of a sudden, people start admiring him. This teenager, imagine this thrown away teenage boy, rejected by his family. And then he, he shows up in town and all of a sudden, everyone starts, he's jaw droppingly beautiful and everyone's giving him attention for his body. 
And uh, he has a master. He's a slave, so he has a master. And his master's wife decides that she wants this boy. Now he's vulnerable, he's emotionally weak. Talk about a, a kid who's estranged from his family. He was almost murdered by his family members. So he's not just physically distant, he's emotionally cut off from them. And now he's getting all this special attention. And now he has the offer of pleasure. I'm not saying this is what's going through Yesim Atzadik's mind. I'm not here to psychologically analyze the obvious. I don't think we're shy to that. I'm asking you as a muscle to try to relate to it, how you would experience it, where you were completely rejected by your family. And then you are put in a place of an Nisoyen where you're getting attention and the offer of pleasure, immediate gratification. And think about that Nisoyen for a moment. And you're a teenager. By the way, when I, when I describe it like this, it doesn't sound like a Bible story anymore, does it? It sounds like something that happened last week in Brooklyn. Probably happening right now. Probably somewhere. A Jewish teenager who feels completely cut off from their family and who has the Nisayan of being offered immediate gratification for something of this world because they feel cut off from, from spirituality. It's happening right now, I'm sure. I mean, I know. And uh, so we know that he was tested. I mean, uh, there's, it's a machlaikis of Damaroi, how tested he was when he went into the house. Did he have intention to sin or not? It's a machlaikis Damaroi, but what, according to one opinion in Gemara, he at least. Uh, in his mind, he said, okay, I'm going to give in. Again, it's far be it from me. I'm not here to humanize the obvious in ways that are not for us to do. I'm, I'm telling what the Gemara says. So he's, a, he's, a, he's about to sin, at least according to one opinion. The Yemo'in, and he refuses. Yemoin with a shalshalis, right? That means he was strengthening himself with every fiber of his being to resist. He was refusing. And what, what, was, the, what was the turning point? How did he have the ability to refuse? Very good, okay. He refused as Rosh Tevis, the Yar, Yosef, Maris, Aviv, Negdor. He saw the image of his father in front of him. He refused. How? The Yar, Yosef, Maris, Aviv, Negdor. Yosef saw the image of his father in front of him. So one meaning of that is that he was about to sin and then he saw an image of his father and he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't do it. I'll tell you another meaning. 
he refused, means he saw the image of his father in front of him. What gave him the strength to refuse? What gave him the strength to overcome this challenge? When he saw the image that his father had of him, when that became apparent in front of him, then he was able to overcome. When it flashed before his eyes, how his father viewed him. Maris Aviv means his father's vision of him. He was able to overcome. In other words, because this teenager knew that his father saw greatness in him. His father saw perfection in him. He had the strength to do the right thing. The image that a parent has of a child is the most powerful tool that a child has to stand up to the challenges of life. The identity that's given to a child by their parent, not by strangers, not by friendly neighbors or educators or the therapist, it's all good, it's very nice. But the image of the parent that the parent has of the child, that is what stays with the child. That is what the child thinks of himself or herself. You can go to therapy for years. You won't get rid of that. You'll be able to overcome it. You'll be able to, able to, to, to circumvent it, to get around it. But the opinion that a parent has of a child, that is the foundation of your entire identity. And if that's your identity, then wherever you go, there you are. I'm going to repeat that. Wherever you go, there you are. You give your child their sense of self. Every situation they will ever be in is going to involve their sense of self. So first and foremost, before anything else you give your child should be a clear sense of self. And if you're a Jewish parent, I would presume you would want them to have a sense of self that's based on Torah, which means my true self is my soul, which is intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy. Oh, but we tell them that. We tell them that they're intrinsically worthy, unconditionally worthy, infinitely worthy. Then what's the point? Then why be good? It sounds silly, but the people say that all the time. But if you knew that you were perfect, why would you care to do anything? Why would you even try anymore? You just let yourself go. No, no, no. It's better. We'll tell them that they, we, we barely tolerate them. In fact, we're disgusted with them. We put up with them. But if they work hard enough to prove themselves, maybe they'll earn a place in our family and among humanity. Let's go with that. That's a good approach, right? Sometimes we have to hyperbolize things in order to understand what they are. Sometimes exaggeration is a helpful tool. Let, but let, let's do apples to apples. I'll exaggerate both. I'll exaggerate both approaches, and you tell me which one sounds more Jewish. One approach, of course, I'm exaggerating, but for the sake of illustration, I'm exaggerating. One approach is telling a kid, "You're disgusting." You, you don't have a place in this family. We barely put up with you. But if you work really hard, walk on eggshells to satisfy us, 
that we'll put up with you. That's one, albeit exaggerated version of that, of that approach. Then the other approach. You are perfect, you're intrinsically good, you are God's creation, you have nothing to prove. You are loved, you are supported, no matter who you are, no matter what you are, you are our gift. We will always be proud of you. You tell me which one sounds more Jewish. I hope that's, I hope that's not true. And if it is, you know, every truth has a little joke. They say every joke has a little truth, but it's really every truth has a little joke. If that answer, if that joke was a little bit true, then I say we need a cultural revolution. Because if there's any truth to that joke, and I'm, I'm hoping it was a joke, we have a big problem. We have a big problem in the Froom community. And it's not internet and it's not sneers. The big problem that we have with a bit, let me finish it. This is all you need to hear. This is the only sentence you need to hear today. The major problem, in fact, the only problem we have today in the Frum community is that children grow up in our system, in our families, in our families, and they leave feeling bad about themselves. That is our only problem. That is our only problem. Somebody who gets a Jewish upbringing should come out of it, should enter adulthood saying, you know what? There may have been this, there may have been that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I can't read and write English so well, but I want to tell you something. What I can tell you is because of my upbringing, I feel good. I feel strong. I feel like an intrinsically worthy person. I feel like that the infinite God cares about me, watches over me, and has nachas for me. That's what every Jewish child should grow up and say about their upbringing. And if one Jewish child were out there saying, I grew up in the Ephraim community and I feel bad about myself as a consequence, that would be a horror. The fact that more than one are saying it, we need a cultural revolution. And I'm appealing to you because you're Jewish mothers. And if you don't have compassion, who will? I, I heard what you said about, them, about the, the, the principles. I don't rely on their compassion. I rely on yours. I do not rely on the compassion of people whose, whose job security depends on status quo. I'm appealing to your maternal instincts. We cannot allow another Jewish child to be raised in our community and think that Toyota says that they're worthless. And if they have abusive parents, at least let them grow up and say, my parents were sick. My parents told me that I'm worthless. But Toyota, Hashem says that I'm infinitely worthy. We need a cultural revolution. And this is the one that could have. This is it. You're worried about permissiveness. You're worried you're gonna, you're gonna, it's gonna be hefkatus. You're gonna, you're gonna just fan the flames of the chutzpah. You know what? Be my guest. Go continue doing it your way. Try the oppressive approach and see. 
Because if the chutzpah didn't come from that, I don't know where it came from. You're taking children, you're telling them, we don't care about you, we don't relate to you, we don't feel your pain, we have no compassion for you, but now here are a thousand different things that you have to do every day in order to barely be acceptable in our eyes, and you tell me that's not a formula for chutzpah? That's where the chutzpah comes from. The people who feel unworthy and pressured, and, and, and they're lashing out. If I treated you that way as adults, you'd lash out. So I just want to try to give this over. We don't have a lot of time. I want to try to stick to the schedule. And there's salmon with pesto over there. So <laughs> did you see it, by the way? It was really good. I mean, I didn't eat it yet because I didn't want to mess it up before anyone touched it. But someone save me a plate, make me a plate. No, I shouldn't say that in a room full of Jewish mothers. It'd be 50 plates. <laughs> but in the remaining little time we have here, I want to try to give, you are my ambassador if you so choose to be. I want to give you ISIS. I want to give you a language for being advocates for the idea that our children are perfect. And, and, and I want you to tell your children that. And I want, if it comes up in conversation with your peers, to tell your peers that. And also, if it might happen that an educator, a school, a principal might not really realize that your child has infinite worth. And maybe you could articulately advocate for your child and tell the schools. I don't want to get hung up talking about the schools again. I, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something very cynical. Institutions have no heart. Have no heart. An institution is a machine. In Stein, they had a bed. Make tall people short and short people tall. A moisid is one size fits all. And if you don't fit, we'll squish you, we'll scratch you. And if you can't put up with that, then throw you out. So institutions, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of faith in institutions, but I have faith in people, especially Jewish mothers, especially Jewish mothers. And I believe that if Jewish mothers can advocate for their children, that we will have a cultural revolution where people will grow up and say that growing up from is the most emotionally healthy upbringing you could ever dream for. Why don't our children say that? We want them saying that. Just, Kiddush Hashem. But if, I, I'm not worried about the Kiddush Hashem. I'm appealing to your maternal instincts. Mitzad, your, your, your motherly compassion for your children. We want our children to grow up and to say, this was the most beautiful way that I could have ever wanted to be raised. And the Torah made my upbringing more support. We'll get to the. I want to give you, like I said, I want to give you ICS to be able to, to talk about this idea. The father tells me he's walking by his 18 year old kid's room. Kid is home from yeshiva. He was supposed to be working. He got fired or he stopped showing up. Six of one, half a dozen of the other, whatever it was. And he's sleeping all day and he's just, he's, he just sleeps, he's just in his room sleeping and, he, and he's got a smartphone doing God knows what, although we don't have to say God knows what, we know what. And it, it's, it's not just 24-6, probably 24-7. A 
Okay, we're talking about an 18-year-old who's not thriving, to put it mildly. He's not thriving. He's not yeshiva. He's not working, so he doesn't have any self-esteem from that. He's failing in life. He's sleeping all day. Now, if the child had cancer, God forbid, this, the, the discussion I'm about to tell you would not have even taken place. But because he has emotional cancer, so now it's a different story. Okay, so what, what's, what's the conversation? Father walks by the room of the 18-year-old boy. He tells me, the father tells me this. He walks into the room and he says to the kid, don't you want better for yourself? I want you to stop for a second. I'm going to hit pause on this story. Does everyone here, you are Jewish mothers. I don't have to teach you this. Does everyone instinctively understand that, that those words are a dagger, are a knife? Now, I also, let me say, I have compassion on the father. I understand the father's in pain. The father is frustrated. And the father's afraid. I think fear is the biggest thing. We don't talk about this. But when it comes to the Tzadagil Obanim, the biggest component really is the fear. Fear of what people will say. Fear of what my child's future will be. Fear of, am I a failure? Fear is a big, a big part of it. Okay, so I am compassionate to the father as well. And I understand where it comes from when he, when he sees this 18-year-old who's doing the opposite of thriving. And he says to them, don't you even want better for yourself? But at the same time, I'm asking you as Jewish mothers, take the side of the child, okay? Your mothers, mothers always take their children's side. I wanna know something. Do you understand intuitively how that is a dagger? This 18 year old who can't even hold down the job that he was supposed to hold down. It was set up by a favor of a friend of the father. And you know, he couldn't even hold that down. He's failing in life. Don't you even want better for yourself? Do you understand what a cruel question that is? Of course he wants better for himself. He's not capable. So the father tells me, child's response is, and it's very telling what the child's response was. He says to the father, you're never proud of me. See, it's interesting. Don't you even want better for yourself? And the child says, you're never proud of me. See, the child understood what, that, what the words really meant. Don't you even want better for yourself really meant I'm so sick looking at you. I'm disgusted. That, I mean, he didn't say those words, but the child heard the translation. He says, you're never proud of me. So the father tells me, I told him, that's not true. Remember two summers ago when you were a counselor? You're all laughing because you know you're already losing the argument when you do that. That's like, you know, you never say you love me. That's not true two years ago. Yes. told you two years ago <laughs> right you're never proud of me never doesn't mean never never means not enough you're never proud of me so he says I was proud of you two years ago right which implies the opposite of proud for the past two years so the kid says and this just blew me away the father told me this that the kid said that it's so interesting how sometimes people are so capable of articulating their emotional needs and we don't hear them like the child said exactly what he wanted he made his emotional needs known but the father didn't hear i mean he told it to me and then in retelling it back to him i was able to help him to, to, to hear it but initially he didn't he says to the child 
I was proud of you two years ago. And then the child says, again, marvelously articulating his emotional needs. The child says, are you proud of me now? Now, do you understand the courage of the 18-year-old who hasn't gotten out of bed yet? To say to his father, are you proud of me now? Do you understand how vulnerable that question is? He's begging, he's begging for parental approval. And he knows the odds are slim that he'll get it, but he needs it desperately. He knows what his needs are. Like a, like a person in the desert screaming water, water, even though he knows the odds are no one's gonna swoop down and bring him any water. He says, are you proud of me now? My father, so I said to the father, what, what did you tell him? He says, I told him no. Now, in slow motion replay, everyone here gasps because you understand that that's murder. But in the moment, again, I have compassion. I understand the father in the moment, he, he didn't understand what was going on. No. I'm telling you the story, not to bash the guy that happened to him. It's so that we can learn from it. So when it happens to us on any level, not necessarily that your kid is, is failing in life, but listen, children articulate their emotional needs all the time, even the kids who are thriving. Even the kids who are getting lots of uh, validation, who are, who are called successes, they also articulate emotional needs. So I, I want to I learn from this story. So he's, the kid says, are you proud of me now? The father says, no. I said to the father, first of all, on an emotional level, I'm just so pained to hear that. But let's set that aside. As a religious Jew, just push it from a theological perspective. How did you dare to say those words? Because what does being a religious Jew have to do with what I told my kid that I'm not proud of? said, you don't know. Hashem is proud of your child. How dare you not be proud of your child? He says, Hashem is proud of my child. What is Hashem proud of my child? This is for the Lubavitchers here. I said to this father, Lubavitcher, I said to him, this, this child who you used to have nachas from when he was a baby, when he was a toddler, before he let you down, what did you teach him when he was a little when he was a little child when he was a toddler what did you teach him what does every Lubavitcher teach their kids when they're little hmm 12 psukim 12 psukim you taught him the 12 psukim you taught him call Yisrael Yishlam Chelet Leilam Habo all of your nation are tzaddikim. Every Jew is a tzaddik. They will inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, to be proud of. Hashem says he is proud of Jews. 
not because of anything they did to make him proud, but because of what Hashem did in making them. My Siyot looks at every single Jew. And Hashem is proud. Now, is there another thing called Nachas Ruach Lafana Shamarti Yeah, that's another thing. There's a second thing called I'm proud of your actions as well. I'm also proud of your actions. But that's secondary. First and foremost, the foundation is I'm proud of you. Not because of anything you did or can do or will do, but because of who you are. Unconditionally, unchanging. Hashem is proud of every single one of your children. Not because of anything they did, but because of who they are. When were you on the same page with Hashem? When your child was an infant. Then you were on the same page with Hashem. And you knew to just look at this baby and say, I have unconditional pride. And then Nebuchadnezzar grew up. And the unconditional pride was removed and replaced with judgment and rejection. It's not Jewish. You want to do it? Do it. Don't do it in the name of Torah. What if the kid said why? If the father said yes, I'm proud. The kid said why? How would you answer that? First of all, First of all, if the father would have meditated on a daily basis on his children's neshama, he wouldn't have come to the point where he'd be placed in that awkward position of being asked that question. It's your question, what would you do? It's rather like if you get to a point where a wife has to ask her husband, do you even love me? At that point, at best, it's best case scenario, it's going to be awkward. The point is preventative medicine so that nobody should ever have to ask a spouse, do you love me? And no Jewish child should ever have to ask a parent, are you proud of me? If your child had to come to you and tell you that they had tattered shoes, they didn't have a bed to sleep in, that they haven't eaten in two days, would you feel would that not shock you that you're not providing for your child? Of course it would. So what about a child who's emotionally starving, who hasn't been given validation today? Why aren't we horrified by that? And I want to reiterate what I said earlier. It's not just to make your kid feel good right now. It is investing in their future because everything you teach them about who they are and about their intrinsic value and intrinsic worth, that's the self-concept. They're going to bring with them to every experience that they have in their lives when they're married and they decide what kind of treatment they're worthy of from their spouse. It'll be based on how you treated them and what you taught them about how much worth they have. When they go out in the workplace and they deal with office politics, their level of self-esteem and self-respect, that'll be based on what you taught them about their level of value. We have the most powerful tool 
that no educator, no rabbi, no therapist, nobody has. We, I'm talking about parents. We have the ability to teach our children who they really are. And that is the greatest gift you can give your child. Everything else is bonus. Then when a child is in a test, like Yesef Atzad, they'll be able, be a martin, to refuse. Because because he'll see in front of his own eyes what his parent, what his loving, compassionate parent thinks of him or her and understand what he or she is really capable of. Not because of guilt, not because of pressure, but because you taught them who they are. The foundation of Jewish education is not Aleph base, it's not Maida'ani, it comes before that. The foundation of Jewish education is you are a Jew and you are therefore infinitely precious and beloved before everything else. We all know about unconditional love. Now, 20 years ago, if I would be, you know, if this was, this is the 19th year of this, right? So if I were here for the first year of it, and I told everyone here about unconditional love, a bunch of from people talking about unconditional love, I would get scoffed at, I promise you, because 19 years ago, unconditional love, you know, that's kind of like new age, right? What is that? But today, everyone understands, come on, unconditional love. You got to love your kid unconditionally. So I'm here to push the envelope. I'm here to say a new Chiddush, that it's not enough that we have unconditional love for our children. That we all know. We have to have unconditional pride. Unconditional pride. Just like when they were babies. You didn't just love them, you were proud of them. What were you proud of? Intuitively, I'm telling you, you were keyed into their neshama, you were proud of their soul. Why did you stop? To whatever extent that you stopped, we all stopped to some level. Why did we stop? So get back to it. Get back to it. Get back to seeing your child as a neshama. Get back to unconditional pride. Get back to the messaging that lets our children know that they were given the gift to be raised in a family and a community that makes them strong and confident. That, that, that enables them to take on the world, to, risk, to resist challenges and to, to accomplish anything. Okay, pesto salmon awaits. We're gonna take a break.